Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to episode 11 of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 11, we are looking at Excalibur number 11, The Price, originally published in August 1989. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Marshall Rogers on penciling, Terry Austin on inks, Glennis Oliver on colors, Todd Klein on lettering, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Your wisdom has forged this ring. Hereafter so that we remember our bonds. We shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and brave. I will build a round table where this fellowship shall meet. And a hall about the table. And a castle about the hall. And I will marry. (laughs) And the land will have an heir. The wheel Excalibur. Knights of the Round Table. This is the continuation of last week's story arc involving the Nazi versions of Excalibur, also known as Lightning Force. It's also the penultimate issue before the official start of the famed cross-time caper. But we're not cross-time capering here. We're still stuck in London with the Nazis and Rogers hurried fill-in art. But don't you dare turn off your ears because I am very excited about this episode, which reunites Andrew and I with a very dear friend we love to bits, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, some brief intros to the usual crew, just in case there's anyone jumping in here for the first time. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write about comics for lots of websites like the Middle Spaces and Shelf Dust and Comfort Food Comics and Comics XF, where I am the co-reviewer for the ongoing Nightcrawler-led team book Way of X. I specialize in representations of gender and sexuality in popular culture and comics, and I spend entirely too much time being Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Take it away. Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am I'm a lots of things, but I'm a PhD candidate at Duquesne University, where I am also an adjunct instructor, and I also work at Mount Aloysius College. Both of those are in Pennsylvania. I study literary and cultural studies, particularly 20th century pop culture, with a specialization in gender, race, class, and sexuality, focusing on things like movies, TV, pro wrestling, and comics, and other silly things like that. And I'm the co-host of Fox Popcast, another, popca- uh, another podcast where we discuss discuss these kinds of things and usually not nazis so you know this is gonna be i I mean i you heard last episode and my feelings on on this two issue storyline but you know i'm gonna do my best (laughs) again don't turn off your ears we have so much stuff to talk about in this issue i'm actually really excited andrew take it away i'm dr andrew demand i'm a lecturer at st john's university and i am the project lead for the claremont run a big study of chris claremont's work with a social media branch to it and i'm very excited today because we have michael hancock with us who in addition to being a phd in english and i I never let him forget this is also a published mathematician which we're gonna need to explain (laughs) what a mandelbrot set is oh Which, that's totally the reason that we brought you on this episode, Michael. So I better introduce you. We are joined, as Andrew said, by our dear friend, Michael Hancock, who is the co-host of our other podcast that Andrew and I do called Three Panel Contrast. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Dr. Michael Hancock is a research and instructor at the University of Waterloo and Laurier University. He likes to refer to himself as the beta ray bill of games and comics research. I have so many questions <laughs> about that, Michael. He's interested in choice-based games and, when possible, game book based comics. We have done an episode 
of three panel contrast about game book based comics, which we will link in our show notes. So Michael, I ask everybody who's like coming on for the first time to the podcast, which has been everybody up to this point, is this your first time encountering Excalibur? It is not. Okay. <laughs> We have done a podcast uh, with Michael previously talking about some issues of Excalibur. We did an episode on Sword is Drawn well before we did this podcast, which, as loyal listeners will know, was part of the conversation that led to this podcast. But anyway, Michael, please tell us your Excalibur origin story. Uh, my Excalibur origin story is that when I first got into comics around 95, 96, I kind of jumped full into like just all the X-Men at the time. Excalibur included, and that was a very weird time to start reading Excalibur because it's the very, very tail end of the first run. Weirdly, it led to, it was not immediately followed, but followed soon after with X-Men Revolution, which in turn led to, kind of led to me disliking Kitty a fair bit. Not not a great intro oh. to her. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. God, I really, in my mind, went immediately to, Kurt has a particular costume that he wears at the end of Excalibur, which we will talk about in due course, um, a very revealing costume. Costume. But anyway, that was obviously where my mind and my, where my mind went. But um, so your first encounter with Excalibur was sort of like the later issue of, of Excalibur. Had you read the earlier issues, like from this year that we're talking about today? Um, I tried. I've I've actually tried a <laughs> few times. Usually, I get a one or two issues into Cross Time Caper, and it just kind of falls from there. Okay, well, good. interestingly, when I was inviting people to come on the podcast, you requested this issue specifically. You said, I want to be there for the one before Cross Time Capers starts. Can no. you tell us a little bit about that decision? Mostly it was like, this is where it, I, I'm, I'm using the metaphor, even though it happens quite literally as well, uh, where it starts to go off the rails for me. Uh, mm. Nicely done. Yeah. And it... It seems like there's a lot of things that are being built up to that are kind of put on hiatus for the cross time caper, but I really like the building that goes at least up to here. So what is it that you don't like about the cross time caper? You feel like it just puts everything on hiatus? Is that what you don't like about it? I, I think the first time I read it in particular, it really felt like it was building up to explaining Widget. And <laughs> ah, okay, <nope>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. No, you poor, you poor, you poor, poor man. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, yes, that lack of follow through uh, did not feel great. That's fair. I mean, it's funny because I think we all know the series so well and have read the entire series so many times that it's like when we've talked about that in the past, we've talked about that being super appealing that like, oh, but there is this payoff, like everything pays off. And I'm like, yeah, but if you're reading it, you do have to have a lot of patience. And I could see a lot of people jumping off at certain points when you're like, these storylines just keep getting brought up and they don't go anywhere. And like, what is going on? So it's interesting that you had that reaction to it. I think a part of it is that like, Unlike many people reading Excalibur, I don't come into it with much of a background on Chris Claremont. I I mean, the longest Claremont running series that I've read was his Fantastic Four run, uh, which is not necessarily well remembered by is, most. Is this is this why you're the Beta Ray Bill of comics and, and games <laughs> research, Michael? Are we starting to get at it here? You know, that, I, I like, think sort so. Of, yeah. 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 Your entry the, points to all of these iconic things are like the most like the least likely. <laughs> Yeah, just off a little bit. This is exactly why I thought that you would really like this series, though. It's such a like quirky, wacky series, which I thought would really appeal to you. Well, I will say I did a reread up to date over the past few days, and this sounds like I'm sucking up for some reason, but the, <laughs> the Twitter feed actually from this podcast really made me appreciate what was happening a lot more. That was. I, I think I looked at it as much more of a like boundary pushing kind of comic and I appreciate it a lot more. There's a certain power when we put our voices down into text that <laughs> maybe has an appeal for us as literature scholars. <laughs> anyway, but thank you for that. I was just gonna build off it's also nice having people reading along with you in a way that yeah. like like when I read this Absolutely. originally in nineteen eighty-nine, I had a few, you know, I had friends at the comic book store that that are not, you know, it's two thousand twenty-one. That's not like around if I just happen to randomly decide I'm going to read Walt Simonson's Thor run because I want to talk about Beta Ray Bill. I don't have 
that, right? But we're reading this with, you know, the three of us and whoever we invite that week, plus a lot of people who are like pretty awesome about commenting, like responding on Twitter. It's just, it, it is, it has been great. So yeah, we're like getting a really great community building up around the show. And some people are reading it for the first time. Some people are revisiting. It's been awesome to have those conversations. Um, yeah, we will get back I to some. Thank you, Michael. We appreciate that. <laughs> another, another naysayer sold on Excalibur. Yeah, sold. Um, I don't know whether we're going to sell you on Nightcrawler based on this issue, but we'll get to that. <laughs> we will get back to some first impressions as well. But first, let's do our usual plot issue summary because we have a lot of plot in this issue. So much dang plot. I will try to get through it as quickly as possible. Excalibur number 11, The Price, opens with Rachel and Kitty flying home together after the very dissatisfying compromise with Lightning Force, aka Nazi Excalibur, at the end of the last issue. They're watched by everyone's favorite male chauvinist pig, Nigel Frobisher, who remains fixated on Phoenix. As he's gawking, Big Ben chimes eight o'clock and Nigel realizes he's late for an appointment with Ice Queen Courtney Ross, who, as you'll recall, is really the evil Saturn 9. Nigel runs and Pratt falls his way into the office. Courtney isn't pleased. From there, we cut to Kitty and Rachel arriving at the Braddock Lighthouse, which has seen better days. The roof is still missing from when Rachel flamed out on her way to the Inferno event back in issue number six. There's also a new lawn ornament in the form of Ileana Rasputin's soul sword, displayed Arthurian legend style sticking out of a black rock. As you recall, Kitty took possession of the soul sword at the end of Inferno, following Ileana's reversion to her seven-year-old self. Kitty wants nothing to do with the sword, and Rachel tries to use her power to destroy it, but to no avail. The sword won't budge. Things get worse when Kitty and Rachel go inside and find Kitty's beloved dragon Lockheed, who is gravely injured by Kitty's Nazi counterpart two issues before. Back at Fraser's Bank in London, Courtney demands Nigel pay his debts, meaning the one million pounds he lost to her at cards in issue number nine. She threatens him with ruin and promises him riches for a price. She tells him to dye his hair blonde and slaps him with a pointy earring, which attentive readers will recognize as the symbol of Saturnine's fascist government. His first assignment is to meet with Gatecrasher, the leader of the Technet, to make an undisclosed offer. A few days later, Alistair Stewart of Weird Happenings arrives at the lighthouse. He's spinning with Rachel and Kitty, who's busy nursing Lockheed back to health, is jealous. Back at the Tower of London, Alison Stewart is approached in a decidedly unsavory manner by Nazi Nightcrawler while she's alone in her, in her office. Before he can make good on his sexual threat, Alison's shape shifts into Megan and we learn it was a setup. Apparently, regular Kurt knew his counterpart would try something with Alison because it was, quote, a cruel and twisted version of the type of lighthearted swashbuckling stunt he might have tried, which, yeah, we're going to talk about that. Back at the lighthouse, Rachel and Alistair pair off and Kitty is left behind to ponder her insecurity. She tries on Rachel's clothes, violently rejects them, then finds herself naked in a castle court filled with strange beings. Then the scene changes and she's standing in front of Rachel and Alistair. She blushes and drops through the floor. The issue concludes in the north of England, where Lightning Force and their train are set to return to their own dimension. Everyone starts to argue and they realize the train is powered by a giant version of Lockheed who's sentient and seeking asylum. Before any of that can be settled, the dimensional portal opens and Nazi Moira McTaggart breaks her word on returning home. She throws a nuclear device into the portal, which Rachel uses her psi powers to contain, but in the process activates Widget, who makes a new portal that swallows Excalibur and the train. Spoiler alert, it'll be a while before they make it back to the 616. Okay, this was an infuriating issue to summarize. There is so much setup, and all of it is actually pretty relevant to the next dozen issues and connects to a lot of the previous issues. But after that overlong summary, I'm very much sick of talking, so we will turn things over to the rest of the team for some first impressions of this issue in particular, starting with you, Michael, the Excalibur naysayer who's slowly getting turned around on it. <laughs> We've foisted a very difficult issue on you. Any sort of first impressions that particularly stood out to you about this issue that you're eager to talk about? Um, as far as the arc goes, the thing that jumped out is some inconsistency with Nigel's nose that turns him into a very different character. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's very weird in the opening pages. He has a very different nose and is like a completely different character two pages later. It's weird to go back because, again, I met Kitty as a character much later in her progress. And she is much more relatable in a way here. Not that she's like bad in the future, but it's... She's a little more the, I am a super ninja tech wizard who's basically invincible in a fight. This is a much more honorable character. And I really feel for like, she is going through so much at this issue. She really is. I know. I like that is, I do like this issue a lot better than the last issue, even, mm -hmm. even if we're just going to focus on the story elements of it, because partly for the Rachel and Kitty stuff that we have in this issue. Other first impressions? Andrew or Mav, whoever wants to. I also like this way better. And again, last issue, we bagged on Marshall Rogers, who again, I, I love. I actually like his work a lot, just not here. So I don't want to rehash a lot of that, other than to say there's a lot of storyline and character development here for us not to be used 
using the regular artist. Like the previous yeah. issue felt like a fill-in issue. This feels like it wants us to learn a lot. It's been hinted at before, but we need to really nail down that Kitty has a jealousy of Rachel. We need to really nail down where Nigel is in relationship to Courtney Ross slash Saturnine here. We need to really nail down that Alistair and Kitty and Rachel have this love triangle, I guess, <laughs> that, that, that I hate, but it is important to the story. We need to give you some context on, not much context, but enough context on what widget is for the storyline to continue. We need to have Kurt grow. We need to have Kurt, Megan, and Brian's co-relationship kind of build. There there's so much work being done here. And up until this point, these things would have been, you know, sort of bevied out through like six different issues. And there's a lot of information dump here that kind of happens. And boom, we're teleporting this train away for reasons. You know, like there's uh, so much goes on. That last page is rough. Like, I mean, I've read it <laughs> so many times and like even just trying to explain what specifically happens on that page between the text and the art, I'm not even totally sure. Right. So there's just a lot of work being done here to where I think it's important but rushed, especially with so much of the slow build that it happened before. I wonder if we could have done better if we'd like, well, I mean, I understand why they had to be in Inferno, but they didn't have to be, but I understand why they were. But maybe if we'd had another issue to like sort of spread this out between the fighting Nazis and this, because there's just a bunch here. Yeah, I think um, this is another one of those issues where I, I would really, as Anna already said, I'd really like to see Davis, Neary, and Oliver take a second crack at. Yeah. <laughs> because I feel like they could have made gold out of this thing. I'm gonna say there's there's a lot of good story beats. There's a lot of good character interactions. There's a lot of stuff that could be absolutely adorable with Davis's grasp of you know gesture and expression. I like Alistair, Kitty, Rachel as a relationship, as a love triangle, in the sense that Kitty is not really in it. It's just this sort of childhood fantasy to her. When Alistair shows interest in her slightly, I find it creepy. Um, when it's just from her perspective, I like it. But the thing I really, really, really want to talk about, because this is like the opening and we can talk about random stuff here. Ilyana's soul sword, yes. when it arrives, like th this has happened before, Ilyana dies um, in Secret Wars 2 uh, and Kitty gets the soul sword. When it arrives in Excalibur, it arrives in a stone as if the sword understands branding itself <laughs> and is able to consciously <laughs> adjust to the Camelot theme of Excalibur. And I I'm just fascinated by that. That's my favorite thing. Well, do you like that or do you hate that? I hate it. Really? <laughs> okay. I love, I love it Ilyana. except for one you thing. Keep in her mythology, I'll be sad. I love Ilyana. I would love this bit. This is exactly your thing about can we, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, get a second crack at this with the original team because this would work if it were explained over two pages instead of one panel. There's very little understanding. If you don't know what a soul sword is, too bad. And this is gonna matter a bunch for a long time in this book because in the context of the X-Men greater narrative, Ilyana as we knew her is dead for good as far as the storyline's concerned. She does eventually come back, but it's decades later. So she's off the table. So this is gonna matter really for the rest of the run of Excalibur. It's gonna come up a lot and it's just kind of thrown away in this one panel to where that's like the poor storytelling, very rushed kind of issue that I have with it. I have no problem with it being a sword in the stone even if you just explain that even if you explain that like yeah it's because the sword understands branding like if you literally did that joke it would help yeah well i mean but we don't even see them coming back to the soul sword for a long time yeah. in excalibur a long time. time and like i mean that kind of gets back to to michael's point anyway there's a really i we're jumping ahead here i don't want to talk about the very lousy story that just builds on your dissatisfaction with this andrew so we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. leave that for a much later time <laughs> But that's completely fair. Um, let's get into some of the some of the meat of the story then. I wanted to talk about a number of things, but let's maybe start with the Kitty Alistair Rachel love triangle because Mav, I know you already said you have feelings about it. And I'm interested too, like in terms of why it's here for Rachel too, because I don't feel like I personally understand her role in the love triangle, but you take it away, Mav. What do you what do you hate so much about this love triangle? I hate it because it's backwards from where she is. I have no problem with Kitty being in a love triangle. So what Andrew just said, where if, it, if it's just a girlhood infatuation that Kitty has and it's unrequited or, you know, Alistair doesn't know at all 
or Rachel doesn't know or anything like that. I'm fine with it, except that Kitty already did that storyline. Kitty did that storyline and she won such that winning is like she got the older boy and it didn't work out for her and she was burned by it and she grew from it. And never mind. Um, like I've seen it already and it was handled better that time. As creepy as I know you find the Colossus story to be, the story was better. Alistair, Rachel, Kitty, to me then and even rereading it now felt like this is here because it's two girls and a boy so obviously there's got to be something it felt like built by trope more than i had no reason to care about any of it and i didn't understand why she wanted him other than that he was kind of cute like i'm i don't need him in order for kitty to be right jealous of rachel the scene in this book where she's just like maybe if i were just prettier you know and yeah. she doesn't understand that you are pretty i buy that without alistair i buy that with just a random it happened last time you know when she did it like several issues ago and it was better that time than it was this time because like he makes that worse for me he he just makes everything about their relationship complicated not complicated in an i'm enjoying this complicated in a i don't enjoy reading this as much i don't need to be happy but i don't enjoy reading this as much because he, he makes it feel sloppy i'm more okay with him with rachel because i like that you know rachel is so unknowingly gorgeous and yet a telepath and can hear everybody's thought thoughts and is still unaware that there's a boy who likes her that i like that's interesting to me but kitty's part in it i don't care I just don't. Though I'm not even defending it because I don't like it either. And the primary reason that I don't like it is because I think that there's plenty of interesting story to tell with the interplay between Kitty and Rachel without bringing a man into it who's going to actually interfere with the closeness of their relationship. Like the panels and like sort of thought bubbles where Kitty is just like thinking horrible things about Rachel and being like, Rachel, that cow, like, oh, I hate Rachel and everything. Like I get what they're trying to do there. That is sort of the convincing emotional immaturity of like a young girl, but I don't like what it does to to her relationship with Rachel. I just, it goes on too long. I don't like that it distances them from each other. I think that there would be ways that you could have tension between those characters without making it about a man. And that is the negative thing about love triangles. The thing that I will say in its favor is that it is very different from the Colossus relationship in that Alistair is a very different type of man. Yeah. So, I mean, there is that and you can sort of see her maturity in that sense. This is a guy that in theory, if it wasn't for the age thing, would be more her type. He's a guy who's more like her. He's like more this like nerdy guy he's not yeah how did you describe colossus in a previous one that he's like mr universe with an artist soul or something yeah yeah and but that is kitty's type right kitty is the very smart girl who is more attractive than she thinks she is she's actually she's drawn to be gorgeous at whether she's 13 or 30 you know like she they always try to make her the girl next door pretty right and kitty is very into colossus star lord pete wisdom like kitty doesn't like kitty wants to be best friends with doug ramsey she doesn't want to date him so alistair just seems alistair who i know nothing about other than that he's smart doesn't seem right for her to me like i don't think that if they were the same age she could have dated doug at any point and doug would have totally been into it and she chose not to is that how like, they're trying to situate it as being sort of a character growth thing for her though like realizing that she's attracted to a different type of man i mean i'm trying to be generous yeah here. i i don't know and if, and I, I think it could be if again this is another thing where I think Anna wrote a better story than what's on the page if that was given to me maybe right if it was if, it, if there was any reason for her attraction she says he has pretty eyes that's what she said not just here that's all she'll ever say about him she says oh he's so gorgeous and Rachel's a cow because he likes her that's all I ever get and I'd rather you know I think Rachel and Kitty's relationship I don't even care if Rachel and Kitty's relationship has problems I think it's more interesting without Alistair causing the problems than it is with him causing the problems um and well, if, yeah. yeah and if it's going to be if there if a man's going to come between him between them he needs to be more interesting of a man other than just the story trope of two women can't get along because there's a guy there and that's not even woke 2021 mav this irritated me when i was 14 like <laughs> like i'm like what is why i just don't care about their relationship with this guy once kitty stops fawning over alistair i like him better because yeah, he's yeah. got more to do once he's trying to have a relationship with Rachel. Like it just, nothing about it made sense to me. Well, he's set up to have us resent him too because of the way he's interfering with the relationships with these characters. And I what, don't what are your, I just yeah. don't care. I just don't care about him. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, what are your thoughts about this? Do you have any thoughts about this love triangle, Michael? I appreciate, like, in particular, the way that their biggest exchange is that she says, call me Ray. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And she's, there's a reading where she just dismisses him for the rest of the issue. <laughs> I do like those two panels. And I don't even know whether it's, like, intentional. But, like, the way yeah. the art is just, like, her face is so manic and distant. And she's just like, okay, Kitty's over there. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of great. But again, I don't know how intentional it is. Well, I mean, what is Rachel's role in this love triangle? Maybe that's like a good question to ask because we've had it brought up and this is part of the Nigel story too, that like everybody falls devastatingly infatuated anyway with Rachel. Why is this present in the story? I have a lot of questions about what the goals are for Rachel's sexuality at this point in the story. And I'm interested to hear the rest of your thoughts on it. I don't think Rachel's in a place where she's even remotely interested in anyone, essentially, right? Like yeah. she's she's in this kind of recovery place. I really like the relationship and the dynamics that we see in this story. I think it's like when Kitty calls Rachel a cow, this could be charitable, but I don't read that as being particularly mean-spirited. Kitty uses very strong language to describe her friends constantly uh, in her internal monologue. That's that's just a thing she does. To describe right? to describe friends who she knows can hear that because they have a psychic link. That adds like <laughs> another level to it. Does she hear it? I have, I, have, I have questions about that. Does Rachel hear this? This issue, last issue, and next issue where Rachel, if she's paying attention to the, her psi link, just ignores it. And do, so does she, because a lot of times you have the psychic who Gene had this problem a lot. Oh my God, I, you know, thoughts are young Gene and, you know, in the very early days. Uh, the thoughts are too much. I can, you know, I can hear it's like you're shouting all the time. And is Rachel always listening or no? I can't tell here because if Rachel is is always listening, then she should better understand what's going on between with Alistair and with Kitty than she seems to. I like the, I like to think that she, to read Excalibur as if every time someone is in a thought bubble, she knows it, but she's just very polite. Polite, Rachel? Exactly. She's <laughs> not, she's not, she's not <laughs> She's, or just she's doesn't care enough to bother. Yeah. yeah, maybe apathy. Yeah, okay, maybe. that's more Apathy, likely. apathy I could buy, yeah. I mean, and that's what I was getting at, what I actually liked about that panel, right? It's like Alistair's sort of flirting with her, and she's like, hi, I'm Rachel, and she gives him the nice smile. Anyway, I'm moving on. You know, like, as I mean, she's kind of, I mean, we talked way back in Sword is Drawn, right? That she's at the campfire hovering above the ground, right? She has kind of a distance from reality sometimes that I yeah. can read into part of her character. And like, maybe that's part of what's going on here in terms of her apathy and kind of aloofness, perhaps. I'm not totally sure. I mean, is that where you think Claremont is trying to go with this character at this point in time, Andrew, though? Do you think that sort of her apathy and kind of like we've suggested sort of asexual themes almost for this character before that she's just in this place of recovery and like do you think that that's intentional i do i think it also sort of leads into the um, um the absence the gap in, in rachel's story right that she comes back a changed character that she's you know not the intensely pensive introspective character that we used to see in the pages of x-men this is someone who is relatively confident and kind of calm to an almost sociopathic degree at times i don't know i, I I love how she covers for Kitty in this issue where Alistair says, did yeah. I see, just see what I think I saw? And she looks at him and says, nope. Uh, and she's moving on. This just occurred to me, but the, the scene where she tries to remove the sword while saying like, I'm your best friend and this is what best friends do for each other. Like that's a really yeah. interesting comparison between Kitty's relationship with Ileana and her relationship with Phoenix, maybe saying that like Phoenix can't replace Ileana. I was wondering about the kind of the love triangle relationship of that kind of scene. Yeah, I mean, like there was almost a competition going on in that little scene between like Rachel and Ileana for like Kitty's affections, even though Rachel, even though Ileana is separate from the scene. And yeah, I was wondering about that as well. I, say, I like to think that Rachel hears everyone's thoughts all the time and has just, you know, made peace with it. Nothing surprises her as a result of that other than Nigel Frobisher. Well, so then you're reading, so, you're reading yeah. Rachel then is that she she is aware that Alistair likes her and she's aware that oh, Kitty 100%. likes Alistair. And, and is very intentionally you think there's an intentionality to it as opposed to an intentionality to what though like, like she doesn't respond to alistair in any right. way but she's well but is she intentionally ignoring alistair for kitty's benefit or is she too uh, I, see. I have no better word that i don't mean this as a negative <laughs> cut towards rachel i have no better word here though is she too self-absorbed to be aware that alistair likes her or is she ignoring alistair for kitty i think it's a combination of indifference and sympathy for kitty better word sympathy i wonder about because that's 
where I'm getting hung up on it because if she had sympathy for Kitty, wouldn't they like talk about this and she wouldn't like let Kitty keep pining for Alistair who Rachel has no interest in. And it bothers me that they don't ever talk about it. And that's part of what I find unsatisfying about the love triangle personally. And I mean, if it's going to be, that's yeah, why yeah. Yeah. Or at least doesn't care or doesn't understand how deeply it's affecting Kitty. But I mean, that doesn't make any sense because they have a psi link and they're supposedly so close. There's a lot that bothers me about how the love triangle plays out. Because I mean, if it's going to be a thing that you're using it to teach us more about how the characters operate, I don't think it's effective on that level. And maybe that gets to the heart of what I don't like about it. Can I do the Anna thing? Well, what and try did to she say? <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's what I was going to Is it because a lot of times you'll make the, the excuses. Can we say that maybe, maybe Claremont's got an intentionality to this? The Rachel that we saw leave x-men was awful with emotions like she could not handle like yeah. oh my god my daddy doesn't love me yeah i know he barely knows me but you know <laughs> you know like, like she was horrible about that and now she's back as this super cool you just said almost sociopathic thing is this just the rachel veneer though right like has she just gotten better at covering up her not knowing you know rachel grew up in hell right rachel grew up in a hall in a literal holocaust doesn't really know how to have regular regular people emotions with you know dealing with life outside of a war so this mm -hmm. is her covering up her like you said what would she say well a normal person would say okay you're my best friend let's talk about this boy and not let him come come between us rachel has got no experience with normality whatsoever to this point she's never had anything approaching a normal life so maybe she just doesn't know what to say if we assume that andrew's right and she can hear kitty's thoughts here well i mean speaking of hearing kitty's thoughts what is going on in the scene where they're flying back to the lighthouse and they have a conversation about when rachel used her side powers to put kitty in the baby outfit which we talked about sort of the queer <laughs> subtext implications of that and i don't really understand part of this conversation so this is what happens in the two panels on the middle of this page kitty says hey you weren't the one left dressed like some stupid baby it was your telekinetic power that rearranged the molecules of my favorite aaron cardigan what were you doing and rachel says the memory is so strong in your thoughts i couldn't help manifesting an image of it does that exchange make sense i don't what memory in her thoughts? I was under, I was like totally confused there. The picture of baby Kitty is, is Rachel projecting it. Yeah. Like that's not Kitty's thoughts. Rachel is literally projecting the image. Kitty can see it in front of her face because Rachel is projecting it for her because like oh, think, think Danny Moonstar power. Wow. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Man, is this like an, ish, like an instance of like <laughs> just the artistic rendering of this made it's that awful. so profoundly yeah. unclear to yes. me that yes. I had no yes. idea yes. what was going on? Yes. Because that's also what happens for me on the final page where I'm not really sure what's going on. God, man, I'm glad we talked about it actually because that's interesting. I just was like so confused there because I thought it was like implying that kitty had like an idea of wanting to be a baby and rachel was saying that she was picking up on that and i was like wait what we kind of just moved past this really quickly because this would have been a lot given the queer subtext we talked about before anyway thank you for clearing that up for I, me or but again that's how i'm reading it having read this issue five or six times and i think that's what's going on you're right the artwork's not clear <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, I mean, thank you for that. But I mean, the other thing I'm wondering, though, about Rachel that I was sort of trying to get it back to with my original question was like, why are there all these men inserted into the narrative that have this lust for Rachel or infatuation with Rachel or whatever? Is this part of how we're trying to illustrate a character journey for Rachel? Does this say something about the nature of these men? Like, why is this here? Because we had it with Nigel and now we have it with Alistair. What is he trying to hammer home here? What are they trying to hammer home here? I don't think it's about Rachel. I think it's about Kitty. The, the idea is that Rachel is sort of this role model for Kitty in her maturation towards, I don't know, I don't know, sexual awakening maybe? Uh, so, so having Kitty witness all of these men fawning over Rachel is a good way to sort of stage that. Okay. I mean, even in the case of, yeah, Nigel in sort of a sexual harassment way, but I mean, but yeah, I see that reading. Yeah, Michael, you were going to say something. Yeah, I think it, it, part of it's the tone of Excalibur. All these men are interested in a woman who's not interested in them. That's a situation for comedy. I said yeah. that very hesitantly. Yeah, no, like, I, I know. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. And one of the things we haven't talked about as kind of, you know, a meta text would be like, you know, Shakespeare as like kind of a, a context for some of these identity shenanigans and 
mix them ups and what have you. And we're certainly going to get more into kind of that kind of context when we have some Renaissance and medieval, medieval settings coming up. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just curious about what point they're trying to make with the Rachel thing by going so hard on having these men be in love with her. And I could see how it could be the Kitty thing. But I guess I'm just very curious about what the nature of her sexuality is meant to be at this point in the series. And I like your reading that, you know, she's just kind of in recovery and doing her thing and not really thinking about those types of relationships. And I find that very believable on like an emotional, personal level. And yet I wish we had more exploration of that actually being what she's doing within the story, because that's just something that I feel yeah. like we're, we're putting on the story, but it's not really giving us that. Is that yeah, fair? fair. I, I think it's very fair because I think we we've talked a lot about the queer subtext of not even of Kitty and Rachel of Rachel. I think a lot of that is reader projection of what we might want her to be, because as far as sexuality, uh, this is going to change. But thus far through the series, Rachel is relatively asexual she is rendered as being sexual people sexualize her and she says i dress like this because this is me she says that to brian but she's she's made no intention of being into boys people ship her with kitty she's made no intention in narrative of really being into kitty she wants to be the closest is this issue where she's like no i'm your friend i'm doing this for you you know that's like the most active that she has made of a gesture towards anything now she's she loves kitty you know i've got a side link i've got to protect you i've got a you know we talked about kitty yeah. entering rachel we talked about rachel needing kitty when she's throwing up over the toilet you know there's been a lot of emotional building but it's never a directed action from rachel so i don't think she really wants anything other than to be loved by a family right now yeah yeah that's my that's my read of her too but yeah and yet i feel it when she uses the word roomy every oh, time yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but i i feel it more because i mean what anna said I, I think that's jealousy like i'm not saying it's not there i'm saying that's jealousy of if anything it's jealousy of iliana and their relationship more than her having any specific feelings of her own you know we're talking we're talking about the story from a kitty's immaturity standpoint but sexually at this point in the narrative kitty is far even if you assume that her and colossus haven't slept together which i believe they had not canon wise it was like one of the problems that's correct, he was, yeah. yeah he was too i mean he slept with zaji and he there that's one of the problems in their relationship because he's much older than her so even if you assume that kitty still is just from a from a sexuality and a romantic you know how to date kitty's got far more expensive experience than ray does at this point in their lives kitty might not see that but ray grew up what in about Holocaust. franklin though with franklin though she was with franklin i have so much trouble I have so much trouble reading her as straight. Now I have to remember, canonically she's with Franklin, but has that happened yet in the storyline? Do, do any readers know that yet? It is? Okay, I couldn't remember. It's in Days of Future Past. Okay. So yeah, there's yeah. a little, I guess. That's still, I still think Kitty oh, still knows more. In the... I, think still, I think still think Kitty's Kitty's dating life is far more conventional. Well, yeah, but I was going to say more conventional and like, and all for all the reasons that you were saying, right? Like, I mean, Rachel is like in this war zone and everything. Well, let's come back to you though, Michael, because I mean, we, we've talked about that queer subject and you were just saying you have such a hard time reading this character as straight like do you find that that's coming to you from the text is that coming to you kind of from the fan and surrounding this character like what do you think i think a combination my first uh exposure to rachel was i believe a uncanny x-men minus wow. one issue where it's all about her friendship with i think the sister of the guy who creates sentinels or something oh, wow you really are the beta ray bill of games and comics research michael <laughs> <laughs> but it's like even in that like the core thing to the character there was this friendship with another female character. I'm, I mean, I remember, I think it's uh, Brubaker's run on the X-Men where she has a relationship with a... Um, she are, yeah. Yes. She are, yeah. And it, it doesn't fit. It falls so flat. Uh, <laughs> the worst. Yeah. That was not a that was not a good Rachel storyline. And for the record, I'm not a big fan of Rachel Kurt either, which we've mentioned briefly in the past. But anyway, for different reasons. No. Yeah, like Ilyana to me, adult Ilyana, she usually reads as either hmm. asexual or queer. 
Yeah, I mean, I got, I get that from Rachel, but like, I mean, it was hard for me because by the time I had read Excalibur, sort of like the fan in around Rachel had already been something I'd been in touch with. Like I had seen Rachel in some of the later issues before I'd read this and then just some of the character styling and stuff. I definitely read that into her based on that. So it's hard for me to know how I would read it going in fresh because I didn't go in fresh. Yeah, me too. I mean, I want to talk just a little bit about, I want to get to Kurt's story because for me, it is sort of like the, one of the most interesting things interesting and good and bad ways about this issue but I want to talk a little bit more about the kitty thing and specifically the scene where she ends up naked in the again <laughs> yeah naked again for the second time because we talked about some issues with sort of exploitation and kitty in the past on the podcast so there's that going on but then there's also um I'll let Andrew take the first stab at it because you did a thread about for Claremont run in which I know that you used one of the images from this sequence to talk about well, I'll let you, what were you talking about in that thread in terms of some of the sexual fantasies involved in sort of like having your clothes stolen and being in these embarrassing situations? And that's something yeah. that's going on here. What is like the appeal of that? Why does this surface so often in Claremont's work? Yeah, honestly, the short answer is kink, <laughs> right? This is something that Claremont is into. Erotic exhibitionist fantasy is just a fantasy of um, your clothes come off and, and you have to be exposed. Um, it relates to the concept of force fantasy, which is a, a really kind of long literary tradition surrounding, particularly in the fantasy genre. It's, it's interesting. It gives us, again, this idea of like an alternate gaze, a, a way of seeing that, I mean, clearly Kitty is sexualized in that scene in ways that are like really, really, that there's massive logical leaps mm -hmm. being taken to make it happen. There's contrivances, a ton of contrivances, but we can also see that some of the sexuality of the scene is from inhabiting Kitty as a character uh, and being suddenly exposed and front of all these people and then in front of the boy that you like kind of thing so again there's different ways to look at it basically yeah it's complicated i have issues with it to the extent that it is hard to sell separate it from the age of this character and the exploitative aspect of it and we're going to get more and more into the thirst exactly, owed yeah. kitty letters in our letters pages but at the same time yeah i totally take what you're saying though that like i think this is such a powerful treatment of her subjectivity you know the scene where she's trying on rachel's clothes and looking at herself in the mirror and then tearing off the clothes and then having this embarrassing experience experience and then going back to her workshop to like sort of reconnect with her identity as you know in that space I think that there's so much great that's going on here and yet I also I'm like eh, mixed feelings mixed feelings other thoughts about this scene it is a little redux and, and maybe I'm just saying this because I read the series like I binged it pretty recently but like once again naked once again trying on yeah. rachel's skin it, it feels very much yeah. like the last time she did it it is a redux i feel the same way it's the same scene and it was better last time also don't try on your roommate's clothes without wearing underpants because that's creepy as hell. <laughs> I wonder if that's the kind of outfit that you can wear underneath, wear underwear underneath of it, and maybe that's part of uh, what we were thinking of as the kinkiness of that outfit. Rachel's six feet and twenty pounds heavier than Kevy than than Kitty. I'm six six inches and twenty pounds heavier. Yeah, Kitty can wear underwear under that under that outfit. Like the fact that it stays on at all is weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not drawn convincingly to not fit her. Kitty is very sexualized in the scene where she looks at herself in the mirror with Rachel's outfit on, and we have to kind of take her word for it that she looks like crap because she doesn't look no, like she crap. looks like rachel <laughs> she, yeah. she looks like she's mildly thinner i also don't like i mean they tried to make it um the page before they try to make it work by sort of showing kitty looking in the mirror wearing her you know her this is the t-shirt i sleep in you know outfit but that character if rogers had drawn her that way the entire book fine but that character is clearly four years younger than the kitty that had appeared earlier in the book earlier in the book she's a convincing 14 year old she looks nine there and i don't know why <laughs> let's go back and forth with being charitable about it which is that i'm like yeah but it could be making a point about like her self-perception of herself like in that scene but then that doesn't work with the second mirror scene in which she does look hot but doesn't perceive herself as hot yeah. so it i think really it's work. just i think it's just inconsistency in the artwork i mean you know you said about nigel's nose right it's it's an inconsistency that hurts the story because it's rushed yeah yeah okay let's talk about this kurt thing because i want to make sure that we spend some time on it because it is something that I have thought about so often over the years. So 
Kurt knows that his Nazi doppelganger was going to try to rape Alessand. Why the hell is this here? Like, we've talked a little bit about Kurt's inappropriate flirting in the past, and I understand it on that level, but I have some issues with it kind of going to this place with it. But I'm curious to hear the rest of your thoughts about it. Like, was it only me that was bothered by this? Is it just like my total Kurt fandom that's like making this bo- Okay, good. <laughs> Nope. Okay, good. Go, go it away. Like, I mean, anybody that has thoughts about this scene and like why it's good or bad, take it away. Okay, first, a very like petty weirdness. Um, the Nazi Kurtz costume, maybe you talked about this before. It kind of looks like he's not wearing that. Pants. Yeah, it does there. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes everything yeah. creepier. Yeah, I mean, Kurt sometimes has the costume colored the same color as his fur slash skin. So, I mean, that is kind of a thing that happens with Kurt. But yeah, it definitely, I don't think that was intentional there. But yeah, I can see how that would definitely even make it creepier, especially because he's like lifting up her gun with his tail as he's like sort of coming at her like a vampire it's rendered really strangely can i turn the question to anna so i think the charitable reading here if we wanted to have it was that that kurt is exhibiting a self-awareness of the sort of dark trajectory of some Good of kurt. his flirtatious yeah. tendencies that's what I think and we go is. with that <laughs> I think that's what it's reaching for as well. But, uh, and I don't even think that that's a bad place to go with it. I mean, like I wrote a thread for Claremont Run about like how deeply problematic the scene with Kurt and Megan is in Excalibur number four, despite it being one of my Mm. favorite Kurt scenes of all time. Like I'm very serious about sort of reckoning with my ability to excuse some of his behavior out of my love for him. And I might have a piece of writing coming out that gets into that more deeply, which we will share with the pod when it comes out. But um, the thing that I don't like about it though, is like going to this specific place with it doesn't really jive with what was actually going on in that Kurt and Megan scene. In the Kurt and Megan scene, Kurt didn't want to like overpower Megan. I think how he was manipulative in that scene was that he's manipulating her motions to feel liked and accepted. And I think that that is manipulative and wrong, especially the way that he did it, went about it, you know, with the inappropriate touching and everything. But the idea that Kurt would have a fantasy of overpowering Megan in the way that like rape takes away someone's subjectivity, I just don't really that from him that's not why the flirting is problematic the flirting is problematic Mm. because he's being manipulative out of his desperate desire to be accepted and liked which doesn't make it okay but i don't think it's a rape fantasy and i don't think it is either and i think that's kind of a i yeah i really like that distinction okay so i think what they're going for here is kurt is emotionally intelligent enough to sit down and think well if i were my evil self what would i do right kurt doesn't want to rape megan Kurt is not an evil Nazi like that's and we're supposed to understand that but he does understand himself you know if I took away all of my inhibitions and if I were as more self-entitled and more superior what would I be oh my god I'm going to do something horrible so he knows I don't know why he knows it's going to happen with Alessand but for for reasons yeah that's a good beyond any understanding he sort of gets it it's not the best example I can think of where this was done well is oddly enough on the TV show Arrow, there was a point where alternate dimension Nazis invaded invaded Earth, and there was a point where um, Supergirl and Green Arrow are leading them. You know, the Oliver of the Prime Dimension says, "Okay, I know where they're going to be. They're going this place to kill this person, and we have to go and be there." And they're like, "How do you know that?" And he said, "It's because that's what I would do." And you know, that guy's me, so I just he just thinks about it. Where does the dark version of me go? And that's how he figured it out. And I think that can work. I don't think, much like I said, everything else in this issue, it's so rushed and they don't give me that. I think that's what they're going for, though. I think that's legit what they're going for is Kurt is able to figure out the darkness of what evil me can do because he's smarter about that than, say, Brian or Megan are. I have read every issue of every comic that Nightcrawler has ever appeared in. This is the only time the problematicness of his flirting has ever been addressed. It is in one panel in which he has a thought bubble saying, like, that's what evil me would do and i'm just like what (laughs) this has so many implications and cannot just be located in a thought bubble so that's part of my issue with it too because it's not that he stops doing this behavior after this point i do think he i do think he approaches megan a little bit differently after the kiss scene like he is not as forward towards her for most of the rest of excalibur so it does suggest that he knows something about the wrongness there but i just still don't think the inversion or the bad version of what he did there is like going straight to rape i think that 
Kurt wanted to manipulate Megan into consent. Mm -hmm. Like if it wasn't consent, he wouldn't have the aspect of being accepted, which is, you know, why he flirts with people. He goes to a problematic place with it to me, like partly out of, you know, being a gross dude or whatever, but also just from a desperate desire to be liked. I see it sort of extending from that. And so the inversion of that wouldn't be what happens here. I just don't see what commentary it's offering me on what Kurt's actual motivations are with this problematic flirting. I don't think it's insightful about why he does that. It's making him a much more simple character because it's being like, well, this is Kurt's just participating in rape culture. And I don't even disagree, but it's just that you have to take into account Kurt's position as this, you know, persecuted outsider and how that factors into his relationships with women and his desire to be liked. And that's just not present here. Probably an entire rape storyline and resolution shouldn't be done in eight panels. That's probably the answer. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, yeah. Because it really is just this page and a half. That's it. Well, and we can get to the sort of the like, it's not fridging, but it's related. You know, that we have a female character threatened with assault here for the emotional growth of Kurt, which like, I don't like that either because it's like, well, what was Alessand or Megan's reaction to this And happening? then he doesn't grow. And we get none of and that. And then he doesn't actually grow either. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I love the throw. Yeah, I mean, I like how hard that she throws him and she basically, she it does say on panel, she would have killed him, which is interesting. Yeah, because that's such a betrayal for her, right? She She's got that perspective but then also to set this up kurt must have put her in the position to experience that just so much going on here (laughs) that yeah i don't know michael you wanted to jump in a while ago yeah logically like why did they feel they needed to honeypot this nightcrawler why not just make sure he doesn't leave his cell (laughs) i mean i guess in a narrative level they need an action scene yeah and they decided we need a rape action scene because that's fun and it's the i mean it's even lazy on that level because this is exactly how megan stopped the evil nightcrawler last issue by pretending to be someone else I don't know. Like, I mean, it just, it makes me think it's there because it wants to do the commentary thing on Kurt's inappropriate behavior. And yet I'm just shocked that like a person who had such a role, like a central, central role in developing the character of Nightcrawler would like have such a poor, to me, understanding of what the psychology is there in terms of why he flirts like this, why he does these things. And it really, really, really bothers me because I actually want to have that conversation. And this is not the conversation. I never noticed till Michael just said it, but I just went through and checked. It's the closest thing there is to a fight in the entire issue yeah and that's something i actually like really love about this excalibur series that it takes so many issues to just talk or explore new york or whatever but oh god i'm still looking at that scene and i'm just like after megan throws him too he has like a comedy crash into brian and i'm just i love the genre of ending in this book but to just go from the darkness of that to like physical comedy that's a tonal shift that i am not a fan of anyway (laughs) other thoughts about this scene i could like go on for it for a lot longer because it honestly has been something that I've been like arguing and yelling at myself and yelling at this book about for like 10 years. It's a little bit of the, like Kurt's failure to reflect further is a little bit of like a parallel misnarrative opportunity that we have three characters Mm. who know now that it's in them to be Nazis and there is no reflection on that except maybe by and she Kitty. knows that she's yeah. not because she knows that they had to kill her in order for it to happen so yeah like she's the only one who was going these nazis you know should we really be working with nazis i don't uh, know do you think it would be a more interesting story if it's like a commentary on the negative aspects of kurt's desperate desire to be liked and him reflecting on how a version of him could become a nazi perhaps based on that right i want to just have a family and be with people and be liked and be popular <laughs> and like maybe a reflection on that could have been a lot in- more interesting reflection than we get here particularly being german if he could if he could literally say oh my no. god is germany winning the war the only reason i'm a good per- i mean losing the war the only reason i'm a good person yeah, yeah like that question that's what speculative science fiction is for that's what man in the Ki- high castle tries to do right and it's just ignored it's not there it's so <laughs> weird how his germanness is not a factor no. in like his reflection about this experience at all it's so weird it, it doesn't even come up it doesn't come up at all it's not mentioned like he should have like at least some sort of guilt or something about man in this world in which Germany won the war like I get to be this powerful figure who works for the government which is not what happened in my reality there's just so many other places this could have gone to I really don't like the thing of like signaling villainy through rape attempts in general I just really don't like that as a trope because it's just it's so lazy and especially when it's done here where it's like at the expense of the female characters for the emotional growth of a male character which doesn't even end up being emotional growth because jumping ahead Kurt will inappropriately flirt with Alison several issues later so nothing positive comes out of this and i hate it i hate it so much this is the most negative i've been about anything in excalibur up to this point and again it's something that i think 
it could have been written better. I think one can, if one plans properly, do a good rape storyline. I think if one plans properly, they can do a good Nazi storyline. I think there are a lot of problematic storylines one can write. There certainly can write a good love triangle storyline that we talked about. None of that's done here. And it's not yeah, just Roger's yeah, art. I, mean, yeah. I love Claremont. He wrote it. It's not there. Even the Kitty and Soul Sword thing, which I said, Ilyana is one of my favorite characters. I love the Kitty Ilyana relationship. I am invested in the Kitty Rachel relationship. And in my head, there is something that could happen that could make this Soul Sword moment interesting. It's not in this book. A lot happens. None of it's earned. And it sh it's a shame. What we all need to do is we need to leave this episode and each write our fanfic fix version of this oh issue. And then uh... <laughs> like, I, I mean, come back see, with it to each you're other. You're making a joke. But last time you made a joke like that, we ended up with this show. And like, <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, I mean, this show takes up a lot of the time that I probably would have spent watching writing fan fiction previously. So I'm probably not going to do that. But if anybody else wants to jump in and do it, I'm happy, happy to read it. Please send it to us. Can I make a quick suggestion? Megan throws Nightcrawler through the door and he hits Brian and both Brian and Nazi Nightcrawler die. <laughs> and Megan oh, you're, marries you're, you come around on Megan marrying real Nightcrawler. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm getting more sold on it as the series goes along. We're gonna get to some moments with them in the next issue, but um... no, it's just previously it, Andrew was even like, she can do better, <laughs> but but you're but you're, you're you're at least coming around a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I got a little bit of fan service. The last thing I kind of wanted to ask you guys, because it's going to, this is sort of a setup for the next issue, but like, what is going on with Nigel here? Why do we have so much Nigel in this story? I'm thinking given how much we've been complaining about all of these other important story beats, not having enough time, we get so much Nigel. Why do we get four pages of <laughs> Nigel and one thought bubble of Kurt having a revelation about his swashbuckling actually being a, you know, a lighter form of rape? Why is he considered so important to the story? I think I spent a lot of time thinking about this one because once you pointed it out, it's like <laughs> that a Renfield yes. type character, hundred percent, like yeah. Renfield to Saturnine's Dracula, and so he's like the first stage to the evil villain. But it still the actual seems Renfield like a lot of doesn't Nigel. get this much set up. <laughs> Igor doesn't get this much set up. Look, yes. he's a flunky. We know. Move on. That's all you need. <laughs> I actually liked I, I liked their poker game, but that's not the issue. Well, I mean, the poker game was like rendered so beautifully yeah. by, yeah, that was back in issue yeah. number eight. It was rendered so beautifully by Davis, so it's hard not to like it on that level. But even in that issue, I was just like, this is a lot of pages. Of and but, but after that, you could have, do I really care about his thought bubbles as he's approaching the building and waiting for the clock to, no. You probably need, not that I love the storyline, but you probably need the scene where Satter Courtney puts the earring in his ear yeah. but you don't need you don't need him like we know he's in love with rachel we know nothing none of that matters like it, it's literally it could have been one page instead of six because it's like six pages of nigel between the entire issue i think there's also the element of just you know trying to again sell saturnine but but the way she killed courtney mm -hmm. as we talked about was so well executed i don't think you need to devote you that much that? more I, time to make because we only happy. see her for two of the six pages i think it's a part of it yeah. i know but his anxiety in being late to meet her know, that sets he up he's going to meet Courtney still like I, I think this book really wants Nigel Frobisher to happen and it's not going to happen stop making it stop trying to make Nigel happen <laughs> that's what it is <laughs> Yeah, it's like he seems like a pet character of Claremont at this point. And I'm like, why? Why are you so invested in this? Is he based on someone you know? What's going on? Well, you know, enough other characters for Claremont are. <laughs> so. If it's a very long game, it almost feels like they're setting him up for the redemption arc. But I, I don't know where the I've story goes. I'm pretty sure it, does it doesn't not, go there. There's nothing. There, it, this does not need to be here. I've read every issue of Excalibur. It does not need to be here. Yeah. Sorry, spoilers. There'll be some stuff that happens to him, but we will get yeah. to it but yeah it definitely doesn't go to that place no i'm t but even with where he does go there's a good four pages of nigel here that could have been devoted to actual storytelling <laughs> that is not because we're talking about we're talking about everything feeling too rushed <laughs> we could have just gotten four pages of issue back by just yeah. starting so when he walks into saturn nine's office like later in the book just do that these first four pages nothing nothing happened there's there's nothing of consequence nothing matters for anything that happens between now and the cancellation of the book nothing Maybe Claremont just wanted to do 
some pratfalls and was like, here's a pratfall. Yeah, like, yeah. I can see setting that up for Davis, but not so much <laughs> for, for this rush job. You know, getting back to the Rachel thing and we're going to wrap up, but it does make me wonder if that's there to sort of emphasize something about the nature of like Nigel's, you know, infatuation with Rachel because he's looking at her and it's not just that she's beautiful, it's that she's powerful, right? And that sort of has something to do with his infatuation with Courtney as well. So like, I mean, there's that going on, yeah. but I mean, I don't know that we need that much focus on it to kind of make that point. We've had that point made before. I can make one sort of sideways apologetic argument. I, I do believe that in a lot of good writing, being um, sort of narratively inefficient yeah. at times actually does benefit the narrative because then you can't really predict it, right? And I'm not defending the scene. This is a bad scene. Um, but I, I, I do think Excalibur benefits occasionally when Claremont does sure. stuff that isn't economical. I just economical. don't think this is one of those times. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's I just, agree. It's, it's <laughs> slow and methodical and not even self-indulgent because I, I can't imagine anybody liking this. You know, please, I talked about how much I love our Twitter feed. You know, please tweet at us if we're wrong. Or if you're super into this whole Nigel subplot and you're like oh, more yeah. Nigel. Nigel fans, come yeah, at us. Let me yeah. know. Tell me what I'm missing here because, because again, I've read this book several times over three decades and I don't get it. I skip it. I mean, not this time because, you know, I had to talk about it on the show. I have skipped this issue before on rereads of Excalibur because I'm like, oh yeah, that one. Okay, moving on. All right. Any final thoughts, things that we didn't talk about that any of you would like to talk about before we wrap up? A very brief pot shot. Uh, the parallel that Megan and Nightcrawler were both grew up oh, yeah. under with people who travel and with as demons that sounds like a really interesting conversation <laughs> yep. that i wish yes, they yes. had that really bothered me too i was like yeah i know there is a lot that connects these characters and i kind of am at this point now that i really want to be sold on it and then it's just like and it's one of those ones where it's like in a bubble that's even on the panel that doesn't apply to the conversation because it's just laid out so badly oh it's very frustrating two minor nitpicky things again one rachel's closet is all red and we've established that she doesn't just wear all red at this point <laughs> so i thought that was kind of lazy coloring two there's a character at um, Saturnine's office called Brigitte and because it's a guest penciler and because I'm not that smart I, I was like oh what yeah, is Rachel it, doing in yeah, Saturnine's office yeah. because she looks mm -hmm. exactly like yeah. Brigitte. Yeah that's one of those re reasons that you know like art can really screw up your reading of the book I mean we talked about my misread of that scene earlier if you read this as a copy of Rachel or an alternate Rachel you could be totally forgiven for thinking that because she looks exactly like Rachel. Mm -hmm. Yeah I thought Saturnine had a Rachel and that's it actually is, a cool concept. It is but that's not nope, the story that we not. get. <laughs> Okay, this has been like yeah. one of our gripier. Uh, my, 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 my one gripe is really not even a gripe. I mean, it's just it's, 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 it's nothing. Uh, there's a dragon in the train. Remember that because we're not going to get back to it for a bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, it, I'm just spoilers for next episode. Doesn't come up. Okay. So, but it is important. And you see him there for one panel. Okay. Just keep it in mind because I'm not saying anything else because the book doesn't. Yeah, there's a dragon. It's a slave. You should probably feel bad about it, but we don't have time to deal with it because it's the next to last page or you know, <laughs> two pages from the end or whatever. Like it, it won't come up for a bit. It does have, it is in the pinup at the end, but you wouldn't know. Yeah. Well, that kind of jives with the letter that I was going to spotlight from the Sword Strokes letters page, which I'm partly spotlighting for the name and location alone. It is signed the Star Wolf from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, which is very close to where I am currently located. I really liked the boldness of signing his name in that way or her name. We don't know. Anyway, their letter begins, Dear Swordsmiths, which the letters page is called Sword Strokes. Let's just emphasize that right off the bat. I wrote in a couple of months ago, commenting on the uncertainty I felt about how Excalibur would work and balancing its lighthearted touch, rare in Marvel mutant books these days, and a followable plotline. It appears my fears were mostly groundless. Emphasis on mostly, I will say, because he says later, the stars of the strip are being well handled staying generally more in character than in the many other books. The ongoing saga of Brian slash Courtney slash Megan slash Kurt shows much promise and I would like to see it go on for quite some time. But I would also like to see it resolved eventually with Courtney landing Brian who is definitely more her style and Kurt building a rewarding relationship with Megan who echoes his own happy-go-lucky philosophy in a way no one else ever has. Yeah, definitely get that sorted out ASAP, please. Speaking of ongoing, that tin-plated frog head Stargate should either be nuked or otherwise creatively <laughs> vaporized or it should become part of 
the team save on transit fares. Right now, it threatens to become like that never-to-be-sufficiently cursed elf who kept popping up in the Defender Strip and then was forgotten about for the longest time. So Star Wolf is going to be disappointed about that not being resolved, and he's going to be very disappointed about Kurt and Megan not being resolved um, as well. I find it interesting highlighting these letters that are like, there's so many mysteries, please resolve them soon, right? And it just, that's exactly what we, like Michael was kind of complaining about in terms of his first read of Excalibur. You could have easily been writing into this letters page. Yes, I, I looked at the Star Wolf letter and was like, yes, it is like that Defender's <laughs> Alpha Game character. Like, do you want to come out as the Star Wolf now? Or are you going to like let, let everybody know? <laughs> I love that. My pride broke it. My rage broke it. This excellent knight who fought with fairness and grace was meant to win. I used Excalibur to change that verdict. I've lost for all time the ancient sword of my fathers, whose power was meant to unite all men, not to serve the vanity of a single man. I'd like to check in with Star Wolf and see what he thought about those developments. So if you're listening, do give us a do give us a shout. <laughs> Not unless I was like five. <laughs> anyway, so we will wrap things up there. But Michael, thank you so much for joining us. And I wanted to give you a chance if there's anything you'd like to plug for our listeners, where they can find you, pieces of writing, things that you might want them to check out. I, yes, they can catch more of my dulcet tones on our uh, our <laughs> podcast um three panel contrast uh you can follow that on twitter or you can follow me at person of con and our twitter handle for the three panel contrast is at number three panel contrast i believe we will have that linked in our notes obviously we talk about lots of great stuff on the podcast every month we talk about two semi-related comics and we shift who gets to pick them every month and we always end up picking different things michael always picks something really really interesting we've had episodes on like the flintstones versus the transformers sort of self-reflexive comics we've had one about game comics recently we had one about food comics like you always pick the most interesting stuff for the podcast scrooge and definitely check out three panel contrast yeah we did a scrooge mcduck episode that was a great one or like a, it, was, it was it was it was it was a oh great it was a ducks episode specifically it was scrooge mcduck and howard the duck yeah yeah so thank you so much michael it was so great to have a little sister podcast reunion oh it was awesome yeah thanks for inviting me Next, in one week's time, we'll be on to episode 12, in which we will be discussing Excalibur number 12. My friends call me Billy the Kid, otherwise known as the official start of the infamous cross-time caper. We've got another very dear friend to help launch us on that cross-dimensional adventure, which is filled with swords and sorcery and love and magic and hijinks and doppelgangers, lots more doppelgangers. Also, Alan Davis is back. I cross my heart and hope to die promise to spend at least half the episode talking about how grateful we are for that. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Please check out the YouTube videos which you can find on our website or if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you Andrew and Mav for another sensational conversation thank you Michael for lending us your keen critical eye thank you for listening and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song play us out oh, marathon session guys